Would you please stand for a reading of God's Word? We're going to be reading Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. That can be located on page 494 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. These Bibles are a gift to you if you don't have one at home. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power and the truth of your word. We thank you for, God, the fact that as the greatest prophet of Israel, your words never fell to the ground. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for what that meant then. We thank you for what it means now. We pray that, Lord, through the hearing of your word, our own hearts would be searched, that they would be, that we would be found out before you, that we would have nothing to hide, and that we would be pure before you, God, as, as you examine us and call us to holiness and to sanctification. And so, Lord, I pray for a just a special touch from you that we would be able to hear the word with all of the power that it intends for us, and and that we and that I would be able to be enabled to speak it as one uh, God who uh, has has been abiding in it, Lord, and, and is able to clearly uh, state what you want to be said from it, Lord. And so. I know I can't do that without your help, and so I ask for your enabling power right now. So, Lord, I thank you for this gathering of people. Pray that you would be by our side as we listen to your word preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, good to see all of you here this morning. hope you had a great Thanksgiving. hope you are not still so full that you're going to fall immediately to sleep as I begin to preach. Um, hope the leftovers are slowly and surely disappearing from your refrigerator. I want to thank all of you who came out last Sunday night to the uh, Thanksgiving dinner we had with the other three churches. It was a great time. 
we are planning on doing that again and, and doing that in different ways. Uh, and so we, we hope that you're on board for that. Also want to thank Gabriel for bringing the word to us last week. He did a great job. Most of you don't know this, but he was very, very, very sick and just, uh, just plowed through, did a great job with the word. And what we saw last week with his preaching was Jesus coming into Jerusalem as uh, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the, the Messianic King, the one that had been prophesied, waited for. And he was riding, as Zechariah had specifically prophesied, on the colt of a donkey which no one had ever ridden before. When he got to the city, he was greeted by an enthusiastic crowd. They had laid their coats before the beast he was riding upon. And they waved palm branches. It was a sign of triumph and victory of a, of a victorious king. And they cried out, Hosanna, meaning Lord save us. They cried, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of this pointed to a very specific position that Christ occupied as in his messianic identity. And that was as Israel's king. He was the king that would sit on David's throne. But as Messiah, Jesus wasn't only the king of the Jews. The Bible also perfectly shows him fulfilling the roles of both the Old Testament prophet and the Old Testament priest. Now we're going to get to the priest in the coming weeks, but today's passage is going to put particular emphasis on how Jesus fulfilled the role as the perfect, the, the ideal, the, the uh, uh, absolutely perfect, as I said, role of the Old Testament prophet. Now, after his triumphant entry into the city, uh, the last few verses that Gabriel took us through last week talked about how Jesus spent some time surveying the city, surveying the temple. And then he returned for the evening back to the, to the little village of Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead uh, before this. And uh, this was approximately two miles east of Jerusalem, so pretty close to the city of Jerusalem. Now, what I want you to understand is that Jesus wasn't just fulfilling a prophecy about a king riding in, uh, to Jerusalem on a donkey that Zechariah had made. This moment that we're going to examine today was jam-packed with prophetic significance. Many things that the Old Testament prophets have said are going to be uncovered, revealed, illuminated in what's happening next. Let me give you one example of that, probably my favorite one. And that is that in Ezekiel 11, that was written in 589 B.C., during the exile of the people to Babylon for their idolatry and their immorality, God had sent the nation into exile. Ezekiel the prophet sees a vision, and in this vision he records that he saw the glory of the Lord leaving the temple, departing from the temple, and it came to rest on the Mount of Olives, there on the eastern side of Jerusalem, outside of the gates, just right outside of the gates. But then, when you come to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament canon, in chapter 3, verse 2, we read this incredible promise. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to His temple. What is going on here? Well, 
With Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and more specifically into the temple, and coming down from the Mount of Olives, where, where Bethany was located, just, just on top there, beyond there, he fulfills the promise that God's glory would one day return to the temple. Because who is Jesus? He is God. He has all the glory of God. We saw that at the transfiguration. And he fulfills the promise that God's glory would one day return to the temple, even if the people who saw him failed to recognize what was happening. So today, what I want to do, with, with images like that in mind, I want to take a look at Jesus fulfilling the pattern of the prophet further by examining... First, the prophetic picture that he paints for us. Second, the prophetic action that he takes. And thirdly, the prophetic penalty that he's going to pay for these, this, the fulfillments of these actions. And then lastly, the imminent prophetic fulfillment, the, the prophetic fulfillment that was coming that he illustrated for us. So, in that order, first of all, let's consider the prophetic picture that Jesus was painting. Now, who was he painting this picture for? Well, primarily for his disciples who were there present uh, when these events occurred. And secondarily, for our benefit, who would read these words centuries later, so that we could not only understand the, the times that Christ was living in, but have a better picture, a better grasp on our own times as well. Throughout the Old Testament, if you were to read from Genesis to Malachi, you would find that the prophets were absolute masters of vivid, descriptive language. And they, they would put together these crystal clear illustrations. And all of these, these descriptive language and illustrations helped the people to whom they preached better understand the message that God was sending them through these prophets. Whether he was telling them to repent, or whether he was telling them to hope for a future deliverance. Now sometimes the illustrations were designed by careful instruction by God in advance of their presentation. For example, Jeremiah the prophet was told to walk around bearing a yoke on his shoulders, symbolizing the coming exile of the people. And that yoke had to be constructed in divine accordance to God's explicit instruction. So there's some preparation that went uh, on before he could do this illustrated sermon for the people. Other times, a seemingly random circumstance or, or a seemingly random item was used by a sovereign God to show his people what he wanted them to understand. And, what he, and, and he wanted to let them know that he was in charge of their destiny for better or worse. Let me give you some examples. For example, uh, the time came when the prophet Samuel came to King Saul and told him that God had, because of his wickedness, rejected him as king over his people. And when Samuel turned to leave uh, uh, Saul, some of you will remember, King Saul uh, reached out, grabbed his robes, and tore them as, from the departing prophets. And Samuel told him that God was tearing the kingdom out of his grasp in a, in a similar fashion to what had just happened, that he had chosen someone better who would wind up being David. Now this is an example of something seeming random. It's just an accident. He tore the robe, but it wound up being absolutely sovereign by the design of God. Also consider when God used Moses' average, everyday, non-miraculous staff that he used in his work as a shepherd. is just a stick, basically. But God used that in the hand of Moses to perform signs and wonders before Pharaoh, to even part the Red Sea, and even to hold it up 
and, and result in the destruction of Israel's enemies. We see a similar set of circumstances to these in what happens in our text today. With Jesus, after the triumphal entry, a similar thing happens. Something that seems so random. If you were completely unfamiliar with the scriptures, with the stories in the gospels, and I just read you the first third of the, of the text that Landy read for us, you would say, that is so random. That has no bearing on anything else that I can imagine. Let's look at it again. Verse 12 says, on the following day, so this is the day after the, the triumphant entry, Jesus looked at the city, looked at the temple. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. Now the first thing I want you to notice about this little section of the passage is that Jesus was genuinely hungry. He wanted breakfast. That may not sound like that important a detail, but it is. Because Jesus was not pretending to be hungry in order to depict something prophetic for the twelve. No, he was really hungry. He wanted to satisfy a natural need for sustenance. Now, pause and think about that for a minute. What a beautiful and yet extremely simple picture that paints for us of Christ's full humanity. He has known hunger. That's interesting, isn't it? Because Mark has portrayed to us beautifully how Christ was God. He shows him walking on water. He shows him commanding storms. He shows him standing, talking with two men that have long since left the earth, Moses and Elijah, in all of his heavenly glory. And now... He's hungry. And what, what does that say for us? Well, it should be encouraging and it should be convicting for us as well. Because ask yourself this question. What does God want to do for us? What does God want to do through us? What does God want to do in us using the normal, the ordinary, and even the mundane of our human experience? How could this reality, if you really got a hold of this idea, how could this reality possibly change the way that tomorrow morning, after a long weekend, you approach your job? How could it affect the way you approach your marriage? How could it affect the way you approach your child rearing? How could it approach the way you come to church or even how you spend your leisure time? If you truly imagine that God can commandeer the most mundane, the most normal, the most uneventful portions of your human experience and use them for His glory. Well, while Jesus' hunger was natural and normal, God would use it to set up a prophetic symbol of epic proportion. Christ's simple human hunger would be God's microphone to announce a shift in covenantal reality for the people of God. Now, it may seem strange to you as you read this account that Jesus was looking for figs when the text clearly tells us that it was not the season for figs. And I had to dig into that a little bit. But I found that in Palestine, there are a few rare species of fig trees that bear fruit outside of the normal seasons. And moreover, the figs in these varieties of trees accompany or even precede the leaves on the tree. So that generally means you see leaves, you can expect to find fruit. So Jesus, seeing the leaves, justifiably assumed that the heavy foliage 
was a promise of delicious fruit underneath the leaves. But searching through the tree's thick cover, Jesus found nothing. And his response is nothing short of shocking. What did he do? He sternly cursed the fruitless tree. Verse 14, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Now Matthew also records this incident. Luke records a parable of Jesus's about a barren fig tree as well. In all of Jesus' earthly ministry, this is the only time that we see him use his words or his power to destroy. What is going on here in this passage? Now some have suggested that Jesus, if we can use modern terminology, was just hangry. That he was being hungry and so he's in a bad mood and used his power to throw a tantrum in response to his frustration at the empty tree. Bertrand Russell was so put off by this account that he used it to justify his own atheism in his book, Why I Am Not a Christian. But you and I cannot consider that explanation for even a minute. Why? Because we know of Jesus' flawless character. We know about his intentional mission. So we have to settle on a more consistent explanation. And I think a glance at some Old Testament scripture might help us to know what's going on in this passage. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 13. God is speaking of his people Israel and he says these words. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. This was God's assessment of his own people, the Jews. And there are similar passages to this to be found in Hosea and Joel, the Old Testament prophets as well. Jesus wasn't just doling out petty retribution on the tree. He wasn't doing what we do when we slam things down and, you know, maybe utter a few uh, non-church worthy words. He wasn't doing that. On the contrary, his, his hunger occasioned a moment of intense prophetic significance. And this will be seen clearly when Jesus, once again in Jerusalem, makes his way to the temple where he would spend most of his final week before the crucifixion. Israel, pay attention, was his fig tree. And Jesus came to it hungry, looking for fruit. Don't gloss over the detail that Mark gives us at the end of that account, telling us that when Jesus cursed the fig tree, that his disciples clearly heard him say it. What Mark wants you to know is that Jesus didn't whisper under his breath. He, it wasn't a secret. He didn't need an advanced theological degree or special revelation from God to understand that he, what he had just said to this tree. That regardless of its lively appearance, it had no fruit. Now, so Jesus goes to Jerusalem, goes to the temple. Herod's temple, called that because Herod was the one who kind of did a massive renovation project on this on this building and, and the court surrounding it. Herod's temple was constructed with four courts. 
And the innermost court, the, the, the center of the temple, was called the court of the priests, where only the men sanctified to serve at the, at the altar could go. Outside of that was the, the court of the men, where uh, the, the men of Israel were worshipped, and just beyond that was the court of the women. Now, the largest section, the court outside of the court of the women, was known as the outer court for obvious reasons, and sometimes it was known as the court of the Gentiles. And that's important. See, it was into this outermost section of the temple that Jesus first entered that day. The court of the Gentiles was so called because it was the only part of that entire massive temple complex that the foreign, the uncircumcised, the ceremonially unclean were allowed to enter. They were strictly forbidden in any other part of the temple. The Lord had made this provision so that even strangers to the covenant, those not born under the covenant with Israel, could approach to worship, to pray, and to learn from the Jews of Israel's God. But when Jesus entered the temple that day and walked into the court of the Gentiles, he didn't see any Gentiles being instructed in the ways of the Lord. He didn't see groups of Gentiles gathered to pray or worship the one true God. Instead, what he saw was Jews selling livestock, selling doves and pigeons and other necessities of temple sacrifice to other Israelites. Jews weren't permitted to use foreign money in the temple. No Roman money or Greek money. So opportunistic Hebrews were also exchanging currencies at exorbitant rates to make absurd profits. A place that looked like a sacred place set aside for the accommodation of foreign peoples to learn of the one true God at all. It looked and it sounded more like any other crowded, busy, noisy Middle Eastern market or bazaar. So verse 15, Jesus responds much like he responded to the fruitless fig tree. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus had seen enough. John points back in John chapter 2 to the prophecy that declared that Jesus would be consumed with zeal for the house of God. His cleansing of the Gentiles' courts dramatically displays the truth of that statement. His, his raging zeal for the house of God and the purity of its worship. Symbolized by the fig tree earlier, Jesus engaged in a prophetic action, one of judgment. The Jews had broken the covenant and were being called to accountability. What he had said to the tree would be applied to Israel. Although there were plenty of religious leaves, the appearance of great life in the temple, there was no fruit to satisfy the Messiah's desires, the Messiah who had come looking for fruit. 
and the rest of this week of Jesus' life would show that just as the hungry Christ had come to the tree looking for fruit and found none, He had now come to His chosen people, seeking the faithfulness that He desired, but He found only hypocrisy. All leaves, no fruit. They looked great, but they fed no one. How many of us have green, leafy lives that are devoid of lasting, satisfying fruit. We're found often in the temple doing all the religious calisthenics, but no one at all on planet Earth benefits from the show. No one benefits from the egotistical nature of our faith's outworking. My question to you is, must Jesus come and overturn our tables or drive us out of our comfortable seats? In verse 17, Mark tells us, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? Once again, we've seen this over and over again. Where does Jesus go to justify what he's doing? Straight to the word of God. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. How amazing that Jesus in the sternness of his wrath still takes time to teach those who would be found listening to him. He quotes Isaiah 56, 7 to show them how far they have fallen from God's intention for his house. It was meant to draw the nations to the true God. But instead the Jews have stolen from it each other in that place. And they stolen that place from the Gentiles for whom it was intended. There was a den of robbers. The place set aside for Gentiles was never intended to be commandeered so that Jews could exploit each other for financial benefit. But his ultimate goal wasn't to restore the temple to its old covenant ideal. Jesus, in driving out the money changers and flipping over the tables, wasn't saying, hey, get this thing fixed. Go back to what Moses taught you. No, no, no. That wasn't Jesus' intention at all. He wasn't trying to fix the Old Testament ideal. He was replacing it. Jesus was pointing to a time where He would be the true and uncorruptible temple. Where all people from every nation could find hope and refuge and approach the living God and learn of Him, Jew or Gentile. And that's why He said, back in John, destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up, never to be destroyed again. And speaking of his soon-to-come death and his glorious resurrection that would follow. But unfortunately, as any study of history and the examination of the New Testament scriptures will teach you, the cost of holiness and the cost of integrity in the things of God is often very, very, very high. Jesus himself would lament, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. If the prophets that preceded him died at the hands of the bloodthirsty Pharisees, scribes, then Israel's perfect prophet could not expect to avoid a similar fate. There would be a prophetic penalty to be paid by the one who spoke the truth so clearly. And that's what we read in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. 
and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The three things to take particular notice of in this, in this verse 18. First, just as the twelve heard what Jesus said to the tree by design, the chief priests and the scribes heard what Jesus said in the temple by his design. He didn't whisper. It wasn't a secret. And you didn't need some advanced theological degree or special revelation from God to understand what he had said. Second, this event was one of the prime motivations for them to put him to death. They loved and profited from the status quo and they didn't want Jesus messing with it. The only way to have their way was to silence his voice, they thought, forever. And lastly, it wasn't just greed and power that motivated them to do this, but fear. Their minds were obsessed with the thought, what would happen to us if these astonished crowds took heed of his words? What indeed? Let me tell you what would happen. If they took seriously the words of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees would quickly slip into irrelevance and their pious sham would be exposed. The Lord had returned to His temple in glory and found it architecturally stunning while both being spiritually and morally bankrupt. Those who participated gladly in the sins committed there were too blind to see its corruption. And Jesus spoke the truth, attracting the wrath of men, but never ever beyond the sovereignty of God. After these stunning events, and the things that Jesus is applying here and will state clearly in the coming weeks, we see an assurance of prophetic fulfillment in the epilogue of this story. Look at it with me, Mark 11, verse 19. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered... And said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Now, Mark's language, once again, very descriptive. He is not implying that that fig tree needed a pot of water. It wasn't sick. That tree was dead. It was now firewood. It withered away, even down to its very roots. And the disciples were amazed. And Peter, in consistent fashion, points out the obvious. Hey, look. In the first chapter of Jeremiah, God makes a promise concerning all the prophetic utterances that will follow in the book of Jeremiah. Verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, I am watching over my word to perform it. That's what God says about his word. No promise or threat that God ever makes will fail to find its fulfillment. In Isaiah, he promises that none of his words will return to him empty, but all will accomplish their purpose. Now, this has, for every one of us, both positive and negative connotations. This truth that God's word never returns back to him empty... It helps us to be confident that God will always do the good that He has promised to do for us through Christ. Both now in this life, in our deaths, and in the life to come. 
But this reality that God's words will never return to Him empty also assures us that we cannot ignore His call to repent of cherished sins forever. The day of reckoning that has been promised will surely come to pass. And every cursed fig tree will wither beyond recovery. How can we continue knowing this to take comfort and ease in our rebellion to God's holy commands? What Jesus did in the cursing of the fig tree followed by the cleansing of the temple will prove in the closing chapters of Mark's gospel to have covenant-shifting implications for Jew and Gentile alike, for both blessing and judgment. But today we rejoice in the fact that Jesus is God's greatest prophet delivering God's final message to the world. Would you stand and pray with me? God, we thank you for everything this this passage teaches us, that you are a covenant God. And God, you determined that you would have a people on your terms, and we thank you for that. And God, we thank you that in order to accomplish this, You have proven yourself over and over again to be a God who keeps His Word, whose truth is unassailable. So Lord, we thank You for that. Lord, we pray that all the lessons of this passage, that we would learn to not dismiss those things that are simple, normal, regular, mundane, but we would look for You to use all of it For your glory. God we pray that. When we hear your words. In Bible study. And songs of praise. And sermons like this Lord. That we would take them very. Very seriously. Because you are a God. Who keeps your word. So Lord we thank you for this. We pray that you would be glorified. By all that's been said. And the way it's been said. And heard. And that we would be a people that glorify our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We could have our communion helpers uh, come forward and prepare to serve the communion. Everything we've sung, everything that we've preached is... Uh, pointed to one thing, and that is that God has been faithful to His promise to provide for us a Savior that even the worst of our sins cannot bar us from. That even the worst of who we can be, and don't cringe when I say that, because there's every one of us in here have things in our life, things in our history, that we would be horrified for everyone else to know. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus does know those things. And He has welcomed you, and He has made a place for you at His table, and called you unto Himself. Now, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, we don't want you to um, 
do damage to your soul by coming to this table flippantly and, and partaking of a, of a communion that you don't even understand. But if you are a believer, man, we welcome you with joy to this table. And if you're not, then we want to show you how to trust Jesus. Just seek out myself or Gabriel after the service, and we would love to share with you the, the greatest joy of our life, and that is to know Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to come and receive the elements and then take them back to your seat, and we'll, we'll share them together in just a moment. Paul writes for us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now, in your own words, in your own way, let's give thanks to God for his unspeakable gift. Lord, we thank you that in giving Jesus, you poured out all the wealth of heaven on us, God, unworthy as we were. So, Lord, we pray that you would let this covenant renewal ceremony draw us closer to you, create in us a hunger for more of you. Holy Spirit, produce the fruit in us that the, that the God of the universe, the Son, the the mighty conqueror of sin and death is looking for in us. Lord, pre preserve us and protect us from being just a hypocritical mass of leaves that have no fruit, God. You said that in you we would bear fruit and that our fruit would remain. And so we ask that you would make that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to speak this benediction over you that speaks to Christ, the clarity of Christ's role as our great prophet. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And in that name, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, I bless you. Amen.